Welcome to Checking In. I'm your host, Zara Barnes, Self Magazine's executive editor. Today, we have a special bonus episode for you. A few weeks ago, I co-hosted a panel discussion about COVID-19 vaccines with David Kaufman, digital director at Architectural Digest. Specifically, we were discussing myths and myth-busting around COVID-19 and Black and Latinx communities, how to address inequitable vaccine access, the valid questions many people have about these vaccines, and more. We spoke with some incredible experts to answer all of these questions. Dr. Leon McDougall, Dr. Benga Ogadugby, and registered nurse Sandra Lindsay. You'll hear more about their expertise as we get into the episode. This discussion originally aired internally for our colleagues at Condé Nast, but I also wanted to share it with you, especially given our previous coverage of the COVID-19 vaccines on this show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's Condé Conversation. I'm Yashika Olden, the Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer here at Condé Nast, and I'm honored to introduce today's session. Today's Conde conversation focuses on an incredibly important topic for us today, the COVID-19 vaccine. The pandemic has taken a tremendous toll on all communities, but especially Black, Hispanic, and Indigenous Americans. To date, about one in 800 Black Americans have died from COVID-19, compared to one in 1,325 white Americans. Indigenous Americans have been the hardest hit group with one in 750 people dead, according to data from APM Research Lab's Color of Coronavirus Project. There are a number of different factors that have contributed to this. For example, it's more likely that members of these communities live in poverty and reside in neighborhoods with overcrowded households, air pollution, and inadequate access to healthcare. Generations of mistreatment at the hands of medical professionals have also left many Black Americans distrustful of the healthcare system, from cruel experiments on enslaved people to the forced sterilizations of Black women. As a result, vaccine hesitancy among these groups and others can complicate the decision to be vaccinated. So our goal for today's Conde conversation is to give people the facts and the vaccine safety and efficacy rates, to address myths and misconceptions and discuss vaccine hesitancy, and also to provide resources on how to get the vaccine should one choose to. Getting vaccinated is a personal choice, and we've gathered top doctors and healthcare professionals to help ease fears, build trust, and to provide accurate information to help communities of color make an informed decision. I would like to thank Tanisha Sykes, a research manager at Vogue. She's worked tirelessly and humbly to research and organize today's event. Now I will introduce Zara Barnes and David Kaufman, who are leading our session today. And now I turn over to them and introduce our incredible guests. Thank you. Thank you so much, Yashika, and hi, everyone. I'm Zara Barnes, Interim Editor-in-Chief at Self Magazine, and I'm delighted to be co-hosting with David Kaufman, Digital Director at Architectural Digest. We have an incredible group of panelists lined up for our conversation today. David is going to take us through a quick introduction and then we'll dive in. David? 
Thank you, Zara and Yashika. I'm thrilled to be here today to talk about something that's extremely important to us as, uh, as Americans and as African-Americans and people of color, and of course, as people at Condé Nast. Um, we're here with three fantastic and really kind of famous people. Let's start with the most famous in many ways. Sandra Lindsay, who is a nurse, director of nursing for critical care at Long Island Medical Center in Queens, New York. She is a Black critical care nurse who was the first person, yes, she was the first person to receive the COVID-19 vaccination in the United States that was not part of a clinical trial or a clinical process. So she was the first one to get the vaccine and she's still here. So that's great. We're thrilled and honored to have you. We're also speaking with Dr. Leon McDougall, a physician in Columbus, Ohio, and the current president of the National Medical Association, national organization representing African-Americans, representing African-American physicians and their patients in the United States. He leads a task force of Black physicians that plan to independently vet potential vaccines. And he also is a leading scholar on the issues of the corona crisis and uh, the work around anti-racism. So it's really important to have him here today. And finally, we're speaking with Dr. Gebenga Ogedebi. He is uh, the Dr. Adolf and Margaret Berger Professor of Population Health, Director, Institute of Excellence in Health Equity at NYU Grossman School of Medicine. Welcome to all of our esteemed panelists. And of course, thank you, Zara. Thank you. So clearly we have a very accomplished group. We very much appreciate all of you joining to share your insights. And as we go, David and I may direct certain questions to certain panelists, but of course, please feel free to jump in at any point if there's anything you'd like to share. I wanted to get us started with a lay of the land when it comes to COVID-19 and communities of color. Yashika touched on the really devastating disparities we've seen when it comes to death, hospitalizations, and severe illness. I'm wondering not only which of these disparities are most crucial when it comes to creating such wide gaps in how our communities are doing versus white communities when it comes to COVID, but also what are some solutions here? What needs to change so that we are not so devastated by this virus. Dr. Benga, I'd love to start with you. Well, thank you very much, Zara, and thank you, David, and of course, my colleagues on the panel with us. I think it's important to appreciate what is going on in the country currently with respect to how things are moving rather fast in terms of problem of the COVID pandemic, but more importantly, access to vaccines. So I happen to be one of the co-chairs of the NIH Community Engagement Alliance Against COVID-19. And so I co-chaired the work group specifically looking at what are some of the potential solutions that can be crowdsourced from the communities. So it's called the SEAL Alliance, C-E-A-L. Four things came up when questions were asked across about 11 states where we had the most very high surge around Thanksgiving. And the four things that came up was, when it comes to looking at people of color, particularly black Americans, there are four ways to think about the solutions. One is transparency. In other words, we've got to figure out a way to be transparent about what we know and what we don't know about the vaccines. The second thing is truth, where it's important to just say the truth about what is out there. The third is trustworthiness. And that leads to the fourth. I'm lumping those two together. So it's the three T's and one P. The trustworthiness has to do with 
our ability to form alliance and partnership with communities. And so a lot of the innovative solutions happening in North Carolina, where they have faith-based organizations, churches, actually working with the community to come up with the solutions. More often than not, we often tend to think that we have the solutions in the medical institutions. And that's often not the case. So the solutions have to be driven with all of those four things in mind. And then one last point I will make, I'm sure we're going to get into this, is that when we look at the solutions we're looking for, they've got to be structural. What do I mean by that? They've got to be solutions that are actually driven within the communities to dismantle some of the social determinants that are driving poor access to care, more importantly, that are also driving the poor access to the vaccine themselves. So I think those four things are part of how we have to think about the solutions. It cannot reside in the medical establishment. It must come out of the communities themselves. And I think we're getting there. We're seeing huge, huge progress, actually, when you compare to last November, to what we have now in terms of the vaccine hesitancy. Although I hate to use that word, I prefer vaccine access. Um, there's a whole host of reasons for that, which I think we're going to get into. We are definitely going to get into those. And it's interesting that you talk about vaccine access. Of course, that is such a crucial part of this conversation. And I was looking at some numbers recently, and it seems as though the vaccine supply is finally starting to increase. We're finally starting to get more. But it looks like the numbers of people getting vaccinated every day are starting to taper a bit. And it seems as though some experts are concerned. There are obviously lots of reasons for this, but can you each explain why it is still so critical for us to not only have access to these vaccines as communities of color, but to go get vaccinated as soon as we can, as soon as we're able? How about Dr. McDougall, we start with you. Thank you for inviting me to participate in this panel today. And also just want to again, acknowledge our uh, colleagues. So Speaking to this question in regards to why is it important to be vaccinated? Well, to start, we know that it is very unlikely that any person vaccinated will die or be hospitalized. So when we look at those major outcomes, death and hospitalization, vaccination helps greatly to prevent that. In addition to those particular outcomes, I'd like to also speak to what our first doctor referenced in regards to how to increase confidence and access to vaccines. And we can turn to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s 1968 book entitled, Where Do We Go From Here? Chaos or Community? And he spoke to the importance of the Black church, Black fraternities and sororities, the Black press and media, and Black professional organizations. So it's so good to see that the diverse leadership at Condé Nast has come together to put together this worldwide platform to speak to this very important issue. So I'll stop there. I have a lot more to say, but uh, thank you for that question. Absolutely. And I wanted to dig into this narrative that we've already touched on a little bit that is very prevalent, that Black people specifically 
are overwhelmingly hesitant around this vaccine and that we are the ones who are going to prevent herd immunity because we are holding off. And what I find interesting is that it seems as though a lot of research suggests in general, we would love to get this vaccine and we simply don't have the access. And I've also seen research suggesting that white men without college degrees may actually be the most hesitant segment of the population overall. So Sandra, you were very publicly on board with this vaccine from the start. I would love to know what you think of this narrative that we are overwhelmingly hesitant and how we can dismantle this narrative as well. Oh, good day. Thanks for having me. I feel very honored to be in your presence, Dr. Benga, Dr. McDougall, the entire Conde team and workforce. Thanks for having me. I don't know if we're overly compared to other populations hesitant. As Dr. Benga mentioned before, we have access issues for sure. And as Yashika mentioned, and you, Zara, that we have reasons to be mistrustful, has centuries of inhumane and harmful practices are deeply rooted in our decisions whether to trust or not trust the medical community. So those are all legitimate. And I too had to, you know, think about those same situations as I made up my mind whether or not to take the vaccine. I worked on the front lines with my team for months. So I got a firsthand view of the consequences of COVID-19. And I had to weigh the risk and the benefits and the benefits of taking the vaccine far outweigh the risk of becoming severely ill and potentially dying. We do know that the data shows that our communities are disproportionately affected for many reasons. Reasons that were there before COVID-19, that COVID-19 just amplified, that we have serious issues that we need to address. I'm sure we'll talk about that later on. Dr. Benga touched on social determinants of health. But I had to weigh those risk benefits and did my research, ask questions, read, listened in order to come up with my decision to take the vaccine. And I also wanted to make sure that I use my platform to instill public confidence into the safety and efficacy of the vaccine and to let people know what can potentially happen if we are not vaccinated. Zara, if I may, I just want to piggyback on, on something that Dr. McDougall and Sandra said. So the issue of why should Black folks get vaccinated, I think there are two more reasons that we haven't touched upon. One is the economic factor. So if you look at the devastation of the COVID-19 pandemic, most of the essential workers were people of color. So with the lockdown and everything else, we're talking about issues with people going back to work. One way we can get back to work quickly is to have that herd immunity, to make sure that all of us are vaccinated. And we're going to see there that the devastation in terms of jobs and the loss of jobs is going to benefit the community much more. The second and most important thing is going back to school. So when you look at the data, what you begin to see is that because of the digital divide, again, people that are struggling the most, communities of color. 
So I have 15, I have a 15-year-old at home, and you know, but we're privileged um, in the sense of you know we can work from home. My wife can. It's difficult when we talk to his friends in school, where that's not the case. So it's very, very important that we get back to school because what we're seeing is that with the digital divide, the achievement gap actually widened. People forget that. And then one other important point, just in the first half of the year of 2020, when you look at the data on life expectancy, people that, like Dr. McDougall and I, regardless of socioeconomic status, our life expectancy for Black men dropped by three years. Again, the life expectancy gap has been narrowing up until the COVID pandemic hit. That's not just because of the disease per se, but it's really because of a whole compendium of factors that has to do with economics, has to do with health, and also has to do with just the sheer burden of neighborhood stress. And then to your last question about, you know, we're talking about blaming the Black community, about hesitancy. That's not new. The way I look at the pandemic is in three phases. You look at from 2020, let's say March, that's when the lockdown happened in New York City at least, up until somewhere around, I'll say around June. That was the first phase. We saw a lot of reports, right, that the risk factors for COVID pandemic, high blood pressure, obesity, diabetes, all of these risk factors, they cluster much more in Black populations than in others. And what did we say? Well, they have it because they have a higher level of comorbid conditions. It turns out that wasn't the case. So you blame the victim. What was the case? 75% of essential workers, which is a high risk for exposure, actually are Black or Latinx folks. There you go with the exposure. The second issue was that there were a lot of other exposure risk factors that we didn't think about. Why? Because people live in multi-generational household. Again, the exposure rate is much higher there. A third factor, there was the lack of, you know, medical sites in those communities. So there goes your high risk again. And then look between June and November, what did you say? Testing was much more available. Oh, Black folks are not getting tested. But then where do you get tested? If you have medical deserts or healthcare deserts in your neighborhoods. And now we have the third phase from Thanksgiving till now, the vaccine is available for emergency use authorization. What are we hearing again? There's hesitancy. Well, how can there be hesitancy when you don't have a place to go to get tested? So that's the issue. So the blame the victim has always been around. Why I don't think it's intentional that much. I think it's more because we often don't want to look for solutions, but we want to perpetrate the narrative. What the COVID pandemic did was unraveled all of those structural inequities. And I think that's why we see today vaccine is everywhere, but you go to the black communities, well, there aren't that many clinics uh, or that many hospitals in the areas where you can get access to vaccination. You've got to think about a creative way to do that. I think that's not going to stop. We just have to be creative in how we interpret the data. So Dr. Benga, I'd like to join you in this discussion about access to health care. And our discussion so far has been more retrospective. I'd like to put this more into what can we do now to improve things we have just talked about. So, for example, the Affordable Care Act. There are 12 states that have not implemented the Affordable Care Act. And where are these states located? 
Mississippi is 38% black. Georgia, Florida, Texas, Tennessee, Alabama. So these mostly former Confederate states have been slow to adopt full implementation of the Affordable Care Act. So from a standpoint of a population, and many of these states, we live in great numbers, that speaks to Dr. Binga's point in regards to being able to afford usual sources of care. And so I just want to commend you for bringing up that aspect of these events that have occurred and the importance of that. I'm wondering if you all have seen any strategies on the ground that are helping to increase access, even in neighborhoods that are medical deserts, things people are doing that are creative, as you said, Dr. Benga, and helping communities of color get vaccinated. And if you have seen these kind of resources, where can viewers learn more about them if they maybe want to volunteer or pass that information along to a loved one? I'll give one example. Choose Healthy Life that's led by Deborah Fraser Howes in New York with collaboration with Dr. Calvin Butts and Reverend uh, Al Sharpton. That initiative is building upon what was learned during the HIV AIDS crisis in the 80s and 90s. So that's one example. And then from the outreach perspective and the coalition building that's going on, I would refer the audience to the Black Coalition Against COVID. And it involves a coalition with the Consortium of Four Black Medical Schools, Howard University, Washington, D.C., Morehouse in Atlanta, Meharry in Nashville, and Charles R. Drew in Los Angeles. There's where you will see some of this local partnership and innovation taking place for vaccine Access. The coalition also includes the National Black Nurses Association, the National Urban League, the National Medical Association, the Montague Cobb Health Institute, and BlackDoctor.org. And I would invite the audience to review that website for additional resources. Any other resources to share before my next question? I will encourage everyone to go to or just type in C E A L N I H. That is the Coalition, Community Engagement and Alliance Against COVID by the NIH. There's a myriad of tools that are being actually utilized as we speak in Mississippi, in LA, in Georgia, and also in Alabama and North Carolina, about 12 states and in Florida that are currently utilizing these very creative community-based programs to actually increase access to vaccines. Please, seal C-E-A-L-N-I-H. You will find, just Google that. You will get to the website, the whole host of resources um, that folks can refer to. Lovely. Okay, my last question before I kick it over to David. So there has obviously been such a focus on negatives when it comes to COVID-19 and communities of color, whether it's our health outcomes or lack of access to vaccines. I do want to create a little bit of space to talk about any positives you all have seen when it comes to how our communities are handling this crisis. 
anything that gives you hope and really just drives home how resilient we are as a people, even when we shouldn't have to be. And Sandra, I'd love to start with you. Sure. So these resources that Dr. Benga and Dr. McDougall just referenced, a lot of them having to do with Black organizations, organizations of color coming together to help not just our people, but everyone seeing influential leaders in minority communities, whether taking the vaccines publicly and sharing with um, their communities how important it is. We've seen minority faith-based leaders that are leading the charge against getting back our lives and our livelihoods together. Exactly what myself, Dr. McDougall and Dr. Benga are doing now with appearing on different platforms to share with our communities the importance of getting vaccinated and being out there educating, presenting facts and dispelling fears. Any other positives you'd like to add? Well, when one steps back and reflects on what has occurred over this past year, I would say it would be the emergence or national recognition of the importance of Black professional organizations. I would really hold that up as a highlight. I've had the opportunity to work directly with Reverend Jesse L. Jackson Sr. and Dr. Calvin Butts and people across the country from presidents of the Lynx Incorporated, Jack and Jill Incorporated, the Urban League, the NAACP. What we're seeing here, the Association of American Indian Physicians, the National Hispanic Medical Association, the National Council on Asian and Pacific Islander Physicians, there is a coalition that is being strengthened by our resolve to meet this moment. And I believe it's going to lead to longer lasting coalitions, even, for example, speaking to police-involved violence, speaking to anti-racism initiatives, speaking to advocating for the George Floyd Policing Act and the anti-racism legislation introduced by Congresswoman Ayanna Presley and even the Clinton Foundation is vice chair of Chelsea Clinton, bringing her and having her speak to the issue and Mark Landrew from E. Purblis Unum. And so this coalition is growing and I'd like to see it continue. Incredible. Dr. Benga, I need to add before I hand it over to David. I think I would just say it's been a, an incredible year in terms of both sadness, but now we're emerging onto light. And I think the light we've seen is that our public health infrastructure is much stronger now. The access we've been talking about will have been impossible to talk about this if this did not happen. So in my mind, I haven't been in this field looking at racial disparities in health for over 20 years. There's nothing new. We've seen a whole host of stuff. What is new is the renewed urgency in building a strong public health infrastructure in the black and brown communities. That is a BFD without saying that, because mm -hmm. if we have that, we can begin to dismantle some of those structural inequities. And that will go a long way, not just because of the pandemic, but in spite of the pandemic, that begins to unravel a whole host of other chronic diseases that, that people are still suffering from. This is a big deal. I think my colleagues echo that very well. 
the BFD. That is good note to end that one on. David, I will let you take it away. Thank you, Zara. What can we say? So many great things have been shared so far. I want to talk a bit about the fact that despite the fact that we have almost 60, 60 according to a Quinnipiac poll, 68% of Americans plan to or have already received at least one dose of a COVID vaccine, if not the entire dosage. But we're still seeing a lot of hesitancy and resistance among younger people of all colors, obviously. So I wanted to ask our STEAM panel, we can start with Nurse Sandra, who's been at the vaccine front line since, literally since day one. What are some strategies to get young people, especially young people of color, to get vaccinated? And how can we encourage them to do so? Why is it so important that younger people continue this vaccination trend? I think the data shows that, you know, there is a shift and I'm definitely seeing it in my hospital where this second wave, which started about November, we're seeing more younger people coming in, 20s to under 50. Just about two weeks ago, I was walking through one of my ICUs and that ICU houses or has a capacity of 14. That's just one of them, one of the five that are there at the moment. And 12 of the 14 patients were under the age of 50. What we have to say to our younger people is that they are prone to getting infected with COVID. And though some of them may think that, you know, my symptoms will be mild, we have to let them see how it can be how they can affect their parents, grandparents, a lot of them live in multi-generational homes and can bring that home to their parents. And we have seen where children and parents are admitted and fighting for their lives in our ICUs. So we have to really let them understand and to think that it's not just about them individually, but how they impact their immediate households, as well as their communities. So Nurse Lindsay, you're saying you've actually seen in your hospital parents in ICU let next to their children. Absolutely. That's a, a devastating. If it's not just one for the family, but two for the family. It's, it's really terrible. Devastating. And unfortunately, the parents pass away and these younger, these children or these young adults are left with you know, tremendous guilt. And we're quite a few months now into the vaccination process of the whole United States. You know, folks sort of have this thinking that, well, you know, everybody knows how to get a vaccine today. If they want it, they can go get it. But still a lot of people don't know how to get it vaccinated or they don't know the easiest way or a way that works for them. All three of our esteemed panels, for folks who are wondering, okay, it's time for me to get vaccinated, but I just, what's the easiest way? What are some easy tips, some simple tips that they can do to just go and find out about a vaccination and go get vaccinated? Hi, this is uh, Dr. McDougall again. So one, I would say reach out to, if you have a family physician or a pediatrician, I would reach out to that office first. In addition, the local health departments are really wonderful resources for where people can receive vaccines. So I would say your usual source of care, the local health department or state health departments provide excellent data for vaccine access. What about cost? You do not need a prescription for the vaccine. The vaccine should be free. The, the actual ingredients in the vaccine, they are free. In addition, most places cover the cost of the 
vaccine administration. So it should be little to no cost to receive the vaccines. And what if they ask for insurance? When I did my registration for the Pfizer vaccine here in New York, there was a question about insurance. The vaccine has been prepaid for Mm -hmm. by your tax dollars. So the insurance was probably for the administration component of that. And even with that being said, people should not be discouraged for going to the pharmacy, going to your doctor, or going to the health department to get the vaccine. So what you're saying is that even though folks, even though I was asked if I had insurance, it was more an administrative issue. They wanted to know if I had insurance, but if I had said no, it wouldn't have been a problem. I could have come on in. That would have been fine. They just wanted to know for their record keeping. Yes. And so they may also be able to bill for someone putting a shot in your arm, but that should not be a rate limiting step for the vaccine. The vaccine has been paid for. We paid for it. (laughs) Great. I also want to mention as well that in addition to what Dr. McDougall said, the vaccine is available for everyone also, regardless of immigration status. That's important for everyone to know. So don't be afraid to show up to your sites to get vaccinated. So Nurse Lindsay, I want to just unpack that just a bit because I think people read that, but they're also concerned about what that means on the ground. So I'm not an undocumented immigrant in the United States, but let's say I was and I went to a site to get vaccinated. Will somebody ask me if I'm documented? Will they ask me about my immigration status or will that not even be a question? That will not be a question. The focus is on doing what is ethically and morally correct and important at this time. And the focus is on public health. 2020 was a pretty monumental year for African-Americans, both with COVID and George Floyd and social justice movements. And Dr. McDougal, you've spoken a lot and written a lot about the intersections of anti-racism work and social justice work. I want to ask all three of you, who could have predicted these coincidences of events, but how has George Floyd anti-racism work and social justice work, how has that impacted the work that you three are doing around vaccination? Dr. Madugo, we'll start with you. So very good question. So in my role as the 121st president of the National Medical Association and as a family physician on the near east side of Columbus, Ohio, and associate dean for diversity and inclusion at Ohio State, there is this intersection, right, that you spoke to. So we're advocating for the George Floyd Policing and Justice Act. We're advocating for the Anti-Racism Act introduced by Congresswoman Ayanna Presley, Senator Warren, and Congresswoman Barbara Lee. I co-authored an op-ed with Congresswoman Ayanna Presley concerning this pressing issue, because when we speak to health parity and closing those gaps in what Dr. Binga spoke to earlier, life expectancy. So if we're being killed at such a higher rate from gun violence, 
that's a public health issue. And here in Columbus, the city council has declared racism as a public health crisis. Our county board of health, the same, and legislation was introduced at the state level. So we really need to uplift this anti-racism movement to help address these inequities in healthcare outcomes. Nurse Lizzie, how do you respond to How do you see the issues around anti-racism impacting the efforts around vaccination for people of color? So to Dr. McDougall's point, racism is a public health issue. It leads to higher levels of stress in our community, as you've heard a lot of people say that, you know, we're not over one incident before we're being faced with another. And so it's just this constant high levels of stress, which research has shown that high stress levels alter our immunity. There we go again with being more prone and susceptible to getting COVID-19 and potentially dying. So it's just this spiral of events, along with rightfully so, we are out there and we are protesting peacefully, letting our voices heard, that creates other conditions for us to be impacted by COVID-19. I know that we're dealing with a lot of different pandemics going on at the same time, and we really have to deal with all of them. But to really protect yourself and to make sure we're safe out of all of this is to protect yourselves by getting vaccinated, wearing your mask, and continuing the fight. So one thing I'm hearing from you is that as African-Americans and people of color, we are bombarded by extreme levels of stress all the time, which can compromise our health, lead as, you know, be it uh, gun violence, be it police brutality, all of the things that are working against, as Dr. McDougall and Dr. Benga has talked about, our life expectancy literally going down. We can't necessarily fix police brutality today. We can't necessarily fix courtroom injustices. We can't necessarily fix gun crime, but we can protect ourselves in reducing our risk of COVID which all of these things will make worse. So the one thing we can do is we can get vaccinated to protect ourselves, to reduce that stress. Absolutely. Great. Uh, Dr. Mega, how do you respond to this idea of anti-racism work and vaccination? I look beyond vaccination. It's a fair question, but I think we've got to look beyond vaccination. Why? Because there's this myth that somehow if we solve the vaccination problem, then this problem will go away. It's not going to go away. Let me tell you why. So a good friend of mine and colleague at UNC Chapel Hill, Dr. Giselle Corby-Smith. Here's what Giselle said. Well, as a serious sister, by the way, that's really looking at this whole issue of racial disparities in health. She said, we can either have tactics or we can have strategy. Right now, we're in the world of tactics and we're winning some, we're having some gains. But we've got to have the long view, the long game in view. The way I look at it, is I'm driven by this mantra. Your zip code, let me say this very slowly, your zip code, where you live, is a major predictor of your health outcomes. How long you live in this country is driven largely by your zip code rather than your biology or by your genetic code. Very important thing. So where am I headed with that? I think it's important to look at the policies that Dr. Madhugo was talking about. Because what those policies we do is we can begin to think about this whole vaccine access in a way where we can geographically code the areas that have extreme neighborhood deprivation, or what we call the social vulnerability index. These are areas where you just see extreme c- 
segregation of resources. If we can fix the public health infrastructure in those settings while trying to fix the vaccination, that is the long game. If we get that right, trust me, the levels of hypertension, high blood pressure, diabetes, kidney disease, we're going to see the trend in that coming down. So in my mind, that's how we need to look at this. So at NYU Grossman School of Medicine, how did we react to this whole issue? Created an institute for excellence in health equity. And the way we think about it is got to be holistic. We've got to start looking at the communities that we serve. We've got to look at how we create new doctors. We've got to make sure that if you come to us as a medical student, by the time you're living four years from now, you understand the issue of health equity, what it means and the people that you care for. So we're not waiting for a pandemic. Will another one happen? Almost certainly, yes. The question is when it does, we're going to have well-trained people, not just myself and Sandra and Dr. Magduga, who live and dream this all our lives. That's not the folks we want to rely on alone. We're going to have a well-prepared workforce that understands what health equity means. And then we're going to have a community with a strong public health infrastructure ready to marshal that. I think that's how we have to think about this because the vaccines are here already. So what? Has anything changed? No, really. Right. We need the policies in place for that to happen. Dr. Benga, and I think our communities will be looking to us to see what we do after this. Okay, so the pandemic happened and you know we have these vaccines and we all get vaccinated, so what? What's gonna happen? Are we gonna go back to the way we were? Are, are we gonna be left again for the next pandemic to happen? And we report these concerning statistics of how many black and brown people, Latinx, indigenous people die from another pandemic. We have to put sustainable policies and structures in place to ensure that everybody's health is regarded as equal. We're running towards the end of our event today. We have a few questions, and luckily our questions kind of overlap. So it appears as if the Johnson & Johnson COVID-19 vaccine is set to resume in the U.S., obviously sort of some, issues, some very well-known issues around this vaccine, blood clots, et cetera. How do we build trust in getting people to take vaccines, yet also acknowledge that there are uncertainties, are risks, and are unknown. So how do we, in tandem, get people to trust to taking them while still acknowledging their fears and not, as folks would say, gaslight them into thinking that they're being unreasonable or unrealistic? Dr. Dugal. Well, I think you mentioned this earlier in the conversation, speaking to transparency. And we've seen that play out in regards to the clinical trials and now the emergency use authorization of the Johnson & Johnson slash Janssen vaccine and the continual monitoring such that when we do have these serious adverse events, they're almost reported real time on the news. So that should give the population comfort in regards to, yes, there is serious surveillance ongoing for these vaccines that have received the FDA emergency use authorization, and then to have the CDC Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices review and then come out with their findings stating that women under 50 should at least consider the other vaccines because of the potential higher risk of, even though it's really small in the teens, 
out of 7 million vaccines, but do make the public aware of this concern. So transparency is important, and, and we see that happening. Who else would like to respond to that? I think Dr. Maduga captured this very well. It's a process. We've got to be transparent. We've got to talk about it. It's nothing to hide here. Nothing is foolproof safe in health and medicine. We look for a balance. We're looking for more safety than harm. And I think we've just got to talk about it. I don't know, for some reason, we don't talk about these things. And I think he's right. We've seen the proof for that now. My 21-year-old came home and said his friend got the Johnson & Johnson, and this is what happened. And I know he was looking at me intently because he hadn't been vaccinated yet. And I told him, look, hey, go get your vaccine. And I said, look, your friend is right. She's on the birth control pill, and, you know, she's less than age 25. And this is what the risk factors are. And frankly, hold on a minute. I don't have all the facts. Why don't you let's take a look at the data? It's so important. By the next day goes that, I've signed up, I'm going to get my vaccine. It's just that important that we're just transparent about the things. We pause when we have to pause. And then, you know, we move forward and we have to do that. I want to end with Nurse Sandra Lindsay, because in a way, the whole vaccination process of the United States began with you. And we're so lucky to have you here. Nurse Lindsay, now we're almost five months into the vaccination process. Do you feel hopeful? And if so, what's giving you hope today? I do feel hopeful as I see a lot of people around me getting vaccinated. We have these amazing platforms that we're able to share. You're able to get experts to share with our population, being transparent about what we know and what we don't know to encourage people to get vaccinated. I get a lot of fan mail, letters, texts, emails from people just sharing their vaccination journey with me. And I'm hopeful with people like Dr. Bengen, Dr. McDougall, who are doing great work just on public health and what we need to do going forward. I am hopeful that these issues that COVID has unraveled is out there now. It's public, it's transparent. And so I'm very hopeful that we'll be able to build a strong public health system so that we're not in this predicament again when that next pandemic hits. It will, but it does seem as though we do have some aspects to be hopeful about, especially thanks to the tireless work our three panelists are doing, and people very much like you. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you to David for co-hosting with me, and thank you to Yashika and Tanisha for organizing as well. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. I hope this discussion was helpful and interesting to you and that you learned something too. Thanks so much for checking in. If you enjoyed this show, make sure to rate and leave a review. Also be sure to follow the show on your favorite podcast app. It helps new listeners find us. You can find more information and references from this episode in our show notes. Follow Self on Instagram at Self Magazine and follow me at Zara Barnes.